Okay, food for thought time. This extract is pulled from Dan Marshall's book called Mind Blown. So if you've ever wondered just how far we humans have drilled down into our planet's surface, then try imagining the Earth as a great big apple. It might surprise you to know that we haven't even sunk our teeth through its skin yet. Bizarrely, some people from the Soviet Union once started digging to see how deep a hole they could actually make, and after almost two decades of constant work, they'd only managed to go down 12 kilometres, so that's around 0.1% of the way through the planet. Creating a hole all the way through the Earth would be impossible. The tunnel itself would be 12,756 kilometres long, and all of the material in its path would need to be displaced, so that would make for one very impressive pile. Not only would the tunnel be long, but inside would be hot as hell, with the temperature at Earth's core blazing at 6,000 degrees Celsius. Now imagine for one minute that the Soviets had succeeded in digging their crazy big hole. Somehow, that hole would go all the way through the Earth, ignoring the enormous distance and the heat, not to mention the other barriers, like the friction of the drilling process and the rotation of the Earth itself, etc, etc. But what would happen if someone was to fall through the hole? Theoretically, you'd enter the tunnel at one point, fall straight through the centre and then resurface on the opposite side. Easy peasy. You'd start falling with zero speed, which would then rapidly build to a maximum of 28,440 kilometres an hour as you'd hit the Earth's core. You'd then slow back down to zero as you reach the other side, much like the way a pendulum swings down and up again. So the total travel time for this theoretical journey from one side of the Earth to the other would be a tidy 42 minutes total. So that's it. That's the food for thought. Just a little interesting fact for you. I thought you'd enjoy it. <laughs> Okay, so do you remember the channel on Freeview called ABC1 from years back? I feel like me and my brother are the only ones who remember it because any other time I bring it up, nobody seems to have heard of it. Guaranteed, every night when we got back from school, we had ABC1 on from 3pm all the way to when the channel went off about 7 or 8. It was some sort of assortment of Home Improvement, Rodney, Less Than Perfect, Hope and Faith, 8 Simple Rules, and probably the most well-known series being Scrubs which was my favourite one by a long mile. I've got really fond memories of Scrubs whilst growing up. I really love the character of JD, which isn't a major shock, seeming that he is classed as the main character in the show. I think I resonated with him so well throughout the first few series because he's in a constant state of learning, growing and change, as Scrubs is pretty much a story about a group of young doctors working their way up the ranks. And this was around the time in my own life where I was leaving primary school and was on my way to high school. And this is obviously a big shift in dynamic for anyone growing up. So this story I'm about to tell, it does eventually link back to me talking about scrubs. So please bear with me. When I joined high school, I went through a weird period of time where I hardly uttered a word, which to anyone that knows me now will sound like the most bizarre thing ever because I really shut up nowadays. But unsurprisingly, the group from primary school thins out and my group of friends that I grew up with all through primary school, had dispersed into different groups, leaving only a few remaining amongst the other random people from other schools that were now integrated into the group. So we didn't really know each other. To this day, I still remember being sat in the Chesterfield High School library on one of those weird English lessons where you'd sit and read books, although I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't reading a book, I was reading the Agony Ant section of Closer magazine, and I weirdly specifically remember that part. But anyway, um, one of the few remaining people 
that I did call a friend at the time. They come and sat next to me and said that the group no longer liked me and they didn't want me to be part of the group anymore. All because I liked Resident Evil. (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing now, but Jesus Christ, if I could go back and give 12-year-old Chloe a hug, I would in a heartbeat. That time was so rough. But I remember being sat there in utter confusion. Although part of me did understand their decision, I couldn't help but agree that, yeah, I didn't really belong in that group. I have nothing in common with them. So there I was, Billy No Mates. Looking back, I do think I was pretty gutted about it. What's worse than having a fresh face full of acne? Having a fresh face full of acne and no mates. <laughs> in year eight science, I was sat next to some girl who I'd never met before from a different school. Her name was Sophie. We clicked almost instantly. So anytime we had to go in pairs, we always made sure we paired with each other. We had the same daft sense of humour. We still do. Um, And I always look forward to science because it was for the first time I got to act completely authentically myself in front of another person since starting high school. And then poof, there it was. A wave come over me. And I finally found the confidence to tell Sophie about the whole, you know, lack of friends situation. And word for word, her exact response was, you're coming to sit with me and my friends this lunchtime. So jump forward 12, 13 years later, that group of friends I went to sit with are the same group of close friends that I've got today. So back then, despite being the only one from my primary school, they didn't make me feel like an outsider. They didn't think I was weird because I liked Resident Evil. They just liked me for being me and they didn't just like me for it, they accepted me for it. So low-key, I think Sophie asking me to sit with her and her group of friends that day was probably low-key one of the best moments of my whole life. Something of which I've not really realised until I've grown into adulthood. So, Sophie, I owe you a lot. I really do. So, thank you. Thank you so much. But, Chloe, what does this have to do with scrubs, you ask? Well, during this transition period of being in an unhealthy circle, to being alone, to appreciating the new friendships that I've now got, the one thing that held my hand throughout this was scrubs. Well, metaphorically. To connect the dots again. This period of time I was going through in high school was the same period of time where I'd go home and watch ABC One for hours, with Scrubs being the highlight. Scrubs taught me so many important lessons growing up. Not only was it intelligent and funny, it had really great relatable characters. But in this discussion, however, I don't really want to make it into a character analysis as I think I'm going to do that in a separate episode maybe where I do a little breakdown and evaluation of the core series characters. This episode... I want to talk about the important messages in Scrubs and how they mastered the art of comedic melancholy. So Scrubs ran from 2001 to 2010 and up until a few weeks ago I hadn't actually watched Scrubs for a very long time. Over the years I've always carried the fact that I love the show very strongly even though I was long overdue watching it. Come to think of it I think I managed to go about seven or eight years without watching a full episode. So jump forward a few years the clusterfuck that was 2020 happened and we all had to endure a quarantine-based pandemic. Me and my boyfriend Stephen decided it was the best time to start a new series. He suggested Ozark. Nah, looks depressing, I said. He suggested Peaky Blinders. Nah, don't like the colour scheme, I said. He suggested Game of Thrones. Nah, can't put myself through that last series again, I said. I sat and thought, right, the world is falling apart. Social media is full of dickheads. Unless you're listening to this right now, you are, in fact, the best person ever. Ahem. <laughs> The news is depressing. What can we watch to end every single night that can lift our spirits? 
And then, like a train, it hit me. I suggested Scrubs. Nah, don't like American comedy, Stephen said. No, I wasn't having it. I went into great detail about the fact that it's not your typical American comedy with a daft laugh track and forgettable story elements. And if it's not blatantly obvious, I'm stabbing at the ribs of the abysmal, unfunny, annoying, unrelatable, age-like milk show that is Friends. Scrubs is its own tier, a comedic genius. But it wasn't just the fact it was a brilliant comedy that I was selling to Stephen. I know for the fact he likes deep messages and good characterization and storytelling. I mean, well, <laughs> who doesn't in a good series? There is an episode of Scrubs for everyone. If you fancy a laugh, if you're going through grief, if you're accepting a breakup, there's something pretty much for everyone and everyone can relate to at least one episode. There is a complexity to the show that's never really been replicated. So in that moment, every ounce of my being was held responsible for convincing Stephen to put the pilot episodes on. By this point, I think he didn't put the episodes on because he wanted to watch it. I think he put it on purely to shut me up. (laughs) But the pilot episode started rolling. And even though I felt like I was watching it through fresh eyes because I hadn't seen it for so long, I was fixated on Stephen's face to see if he cracked a smile even once. The first scene started playing through where JD's playing with shaving foam in the mirror and I burst out in hysterical laughter. Stephen looked like he was watching a director's cut of Schindler's List. He had a face like a smacked ass. I was paranoid that this was going to be the first and last episode we'll watch. The episode continued and the script was coming back to me like muscle memory. I really forgot how funny the show was. The biggest laugh from Stephen was at the very end of the first episode where JD's talking to Kelso and he thinks he's a nice old man only for Kelso to start screaming at him. And then there's that stupid little bit where he turns into the devil and goes, I'm sorry. Um, But anyway, so the first episode ended. I grinned my teeth. Stephen slowly turned to me and uttered the three words I was hoping to hear. It was all right. I asked him what he liked about it. He said he wasn't expecting it to be so heavy on the accuracy of standard intern life and legit medical procedures, as he thought it was going to be centred around a bunch of drama-orientated characters that just so happened to be set in a hospital. So, on the next episode went, and around nine weeks later, we finished the whole series. Well, not necessarily the whole series. We didn't actually bother with season nine, because why... I don't, why did they even make that series? Series A's ended in such a good way. But you know what? I'm not even going to go into it, so let's move on. So to master the art of comedic melancholy, one must first master the art of comedy. So how does Scrubs do it so well? There are so many different levels of comedic brilliance in the show. Be it one of JD's many bizarre yet hilarious fantasy sequences, Dr. Cox going on one of his long convoluted rants, Dr. Kelso's dry but sharp sense of humour, or the more slapstick elements coming from the likes of Ted the Lawyer or the Janitor. The key thing to make a brilliant comedy is brilliant writing, and the writers they had on board for the show were some of the best in the field. Do not get me wrong, some of the jokes have also aged like milk over the time. Even Zach Braff has announced that he often cringes at some of the jokes that you most definitely couldn't get away with by today's standard. Apparently back then, the writers were trying to push things as far as they could for network television, and they surprisingly got away with quite a lot. We do need to recognise that these jokes were part of the time of the show's release and the world is a completely different place now in comparison to 10, 20 years ago. The actors and the creator, Bill Lawrence, have stated that doesn't excuse the fact that some of the jokes come across in poor taste by today's standard. It's just something we need to accept as part of the time and that was it. All of these, ooh, they couldn't get away with that nowadays moments are completely overshadowed with heavy-hitting, serious, well-handled storylines. 
varying from sexism in the workplace, eligibility to end someone else's life, problems that arise when the hospital is underfunded, dealing with scheming addicts, a surgeon unwilling to perform risky yet necessary procedures for fear of hurting their success stats, aging doctors endangering patients' life by sticking to outdated medical techniques, and the struggles of trying to get pregnant and accepting one's sexuality. It's such a hard-hitting and complex show when it wants to be. Bill Lawrence has stated that numerous people who work in the medical field have described it as the most accurate televised depiction of the industry, so that's something he should be very proud of. Scrubs is a comedy that subverts audience expectations by throwing dramatic pieces of melancholy throughout the whole series. So what I'm going to be doing now is reliving and delving deeper into the five most emotional Scrubs episodes, or at least the five episodes that had the biggest emotional reaction out of me over the past few weeks. So I'll be talking about the deeper messages that the showrunners were trying to get across to the audience. Um, so I'll do a mega quick rundown of what the story is before going into the deeper messages. Because I've done this in chronological order from when the episodes were aired, I'm kind of jumping straight into arguably the best and the most popular episode, which is My Screw Up. Now there's going to be major spoilers for the whole of Scrubs going forward, so you've been warned. So in this episode, the gorgeous and amazing Brendan Fraser returns as a guest appearance playing Ben, the brother-in-law and best friend of Dr. Cox. It turns out he hasn't had any follow-up visits to check his cancer after finding out he had it two years before. Dr. Cox asks JD to look after Ben because Dr. Cox has to run over errands, even though he knows that JD is currently swamped with other patients. Dr. Cox returns from running errands, only for JD to inform him that one of the patients he was looking after has died. Dr. Cox starts fuming, blaming JD for the patient's death and dismisses him from the hospital for the rest of the night. Dr. Cox is so angry and upset over the situation, he says he's not going to go to his son's birthday. Ben, Brendan Fraser, eventually calms Dr. Cox down and tells him to go to the party. The episode ends with Ben and Dr. Cox walking in the park, presumably to Dr. Cox's son's birthday. Ben asks Dr. Cox to forgive himself for what happened the other day. Dr. Cox nods, but continues to tell Ben about why he doesn't want to go to the party. At this point, JD walks over, hearing Dr. Cox's statement. JD then asks him, where do you think we are? Dr. Cox turns back. Ben is gone. The camera pans out to reveal a graveyard. They're at Ben's funeral. He was the patient that had died and was a figment of Dr. Cox's imagination throughout the whole episode. At the service, Dr. Cox quietly weeps at the loss of his best friend, all whilst being surrounded by his friends and family. JD's narration kicks in. In the end, the most important thing you have to accept is that no matter how alone you feel, how painful it may be, with the help of those around you, you'll get through this too. And then the episode just ends. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm not going to lie, that episode is a real kick in the teeth, even rewatching it. Even though I did know what was going to be coming at the end, it hurt just as much as watching it the first time. So, what were the themes for this episode? There was quite a few, but to start off, Ben says it himself, it's all about being able to forgive yourself. Being a forgiveful person means that you get into a point where you accept whatever situation has happened before finding the strength to move on with your life without ruminating over past events that cannot be changed. By the end of the episode, Ben leaving Dr. Cox's sense of reality is Dr. Cox accepting that the situation cannot be changed. It's the first step towards him actually forgiving himself. Losing a loved one 
be it a family member or close friends or anyone, it's probably the most pain one person can experience. The fact that throughout the entire series, Dr. Cox is shown to the audience as a pretty mean-spirited, sarcastic and rude character, only to see and process grief in such a realistic, emotional way. It just gets to you because you've never seen the character in this type of light before. Accepting the loss of a loved one is a process that everyone will inevitably have to experience once in their lifetime. JD sums it up perfectly by saying, with the help of those around you, you'll get through this too. Having a sound support system in these times of need is paramount. Having real relationships and friendships is probably the most important part of being human. Knowing that people can rely on us and that we can rely on them, connections like these mould our everyday lives. We grow as humans because we willingly decide to let other people into our lives. It's all about give and take and sometimes you might need to take more than you give, but that's okay. Dr. Cox clearly has a hard time processing his emotions when he finds out the news. He acts like nothing's happened and he goes into a major pit of denial. I think that he fears that others will judge him if he didn't keep it together, so just pretends that nothing's wrong. Only at the funeral, when the acceptance of the true reality kicks in, he starts to get emotional, with one thing left for him to do, which is to forgive himself. So the next episode I'm going to talk about is my lunch. In this episode, it's actually joint place with my screw up in terms of viewer ratings. So they both have a solid 9.8. So this episode's description is a bit of a lengthy one, so please bear with me. In this episode, JD and Dr. Cox run into a character called Jill at the supermarket. They've always found her relatively annoying, so they're pretty dismissive of her presence. Later in the episode, it's announced that Jill killed herself in an overdose. JD then feels bad that he didn't help a person who clearly needed help. Jill's organs are then donated to help three transplant patients. After a while, Jill's autopsy reveals that she didn't die of an overdose, she actually died of rabies. This then meaning that all three of Dr. Cox's transplant patients are now infected. Despite their best efforts, the staff are unable to save the first two patients. Dr. Cox sits in the break room, trying to cope with his mistake. JD tells him that he shouldn't blame himself for his patients' deaths, as they were all in critical condition and the odds of Jill having rabies were so slim that testing for it would have been irresponsible and that they would just waste the time that they simply did not have. At that moment, they both page for another emergency. The third and final transplant patient is crashing. Despite resuscitation attempts from Dr. Cox, the patient dies, which causes Dr. Cox to have a massive emotional breakdown, shouting and throwing equipment around the room, coming to terms with the fact his third patient has just died. He tells JD that the third patient wasn't actually in desperate need for the organ, and he could have waited another month realistically. JD says to him, Remember what you told me. The second you start blaming yourself for other people's deaths, there's no coming back. Dr. Cox is walking out of the ward. He slowly turns around and says to JD, Yeah, you're right. Right, this episode, John C. McGinley's acting as Dr. Cox is just jaw-dropping. That whole sequence I've just described, by the way, is playing out to the phrase how to save a life. It's just very emotional and upsetting to watch. But very similar to the last episode, the main theme here is how to deal with situations when they don't go to plan. Fair judgments can be made only for something out of the ordinary to happen. So, in these circumstances, people tend to think, what if? And in this case, it's another case of blaming oneself for unintentional act of misjudgment. In these type of instances, things completely spiral out of control. 
there was a problem, being that three patients needed three organs. And the solution to that was that Jill was eligible to be a donor. But when the patient's bodies reject the organs due to the rabies, this births another unexpected problem. This was a force outside the realm of possibility that shaped an outcome absolutely nobody expected. And in life, you've got to expect these type of situations, no matter how big or small. When you have high expectations for something and said thing doesn't go to plan, in more real life scenarios, you need to ask yourself if your expectations may have been too strict or rigid. Holding on to your sense of belief on how a situation should have panned out can be more mentally draining than simply just accepting the current situation. In the episode of My Last Words, JD and Turk check in on a patient that will more than likely die that evening called George. They become fond of George, asking him what his dying request would be. So George says a beer. Once JD and Turk are back from buying him beer, they ask him if anyone's coming to visit him, to which he says his family. As JD and Turk leave, Ted, the hospital lawyer, reveal that George doesn't actually have any family and that he was going to more than likely die in a hospital alone. JD and Turk scrap their plans and stay the entire night with George, talking about his life and contemplate the thought of death. George asks, how exactly is it going to happen? JD explains that it'll become harder to breathe, he won't be gasping for air, but he'll just kind of feel drowsy and then he'll just sort of go. George tries to accept this and he has a hard time coming to terms with what JD has just told him. He says that he can't deal with the fact that one minute he's here and the next he's not. JD says that in reality, everyone's scared of dying, but because they're doctors and they fight death for a living every single day, they just don't show it. He just hopes that when it comes to it, that his last thought is a good one. JD and Turk spend another few hours with George, talking about past experiences. After a while, George admits that he's getting a little bit tired. Turk comforts him and says that they'll both be there when he wakes up. George settles before saying, Hey guys, that beer. It tasted great. George never did wake up, and JD admits that even after all that talking, it didn't make death any easier. In the end, all you can really hope for is that your last thought is a nice one even if it's just about the taste of an ice-cold beer. I really love this episode because it just puts your own life into perspective, at least it did with me. I think accepting one's mortality comes a lot easier when you've lived life in an unapologetic, fulfilling way. So rather than talking about death for this episode, let's switch it up and talk about how great it is to simply be alive. The fact that you're alive and able to breathe, love, feel, everything that comes with living is literally a miracle. As cliche as it sounds, it's a solid fact. Do you understand what actually has to happen in order for you to be born on this planet? The odds of you being born are about 1 in 400 trillion, and that is the lowest analysed statistic as well. You'd have a better chance of winning over £100 million on the lottery nine times over in your life than you would actually just being born. So next time you're having a shit day, or if you're just feeling down, just remember that as cringe as this comes across, You simply being here is a miracle. Don't take that for granted. To make the most of one's life is to master the state of gratefulness and taking the time to do what makes you happy. Your emotional needs can easily get pushed back when you've got a busy or demanding life. But this is the quick way of burning out. Put yourself first and don't be afraid to ask for help from other people. Shameless plug for the first Planet Sinclair episode that came out a few weeks back. In the psychologist versus influencer how to live your best life debate, There are some legit ways on how to better oneself across different variations of life. I'd highly recommend giving it a listen. In the episode My Long Goodbye, 
Nurse Laverne is in a non-responsive coma due to injuries she sustained in a car accident the previous day. The staff and Laverne's family worry that she's not going to wake up. Eventually, some members of the staff start to say goodbye to her, but Carla, one of the nurses, tells everyone not to say goodbye because she still has hopes that Laverne will eventually pull through. Laverne's CAT scan arrives. She's brain dead. Laverne's family decide to take her off life support, and one by one, the main characters say their own goodbyes to Laverne as she slowly weakens. Carla, in the end, accepts the fact that she must say goodbye to the people that she cares about before she loses her chance, and she says her own very tearful goodbye. She stands by her bedside, stating that for the last 15 years, you've been my role model, but most importantly, you've been my friend. Carla kisses Laverne on the cheek and finally says goodbye. Seconds later, Laverne flatlines and passes on. Right, I know I keep mentioning the acting, but Judy Reyes, 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 I don't know how to say her surname, the actress who plays Carla probably gives some of the best acting in the entire series in this episode. Even though Carla is probably one of my least favourite characters, you can really emphasise with her here. There's a strong sense of denial from Carla in this episode as she's unable to accept the fact that Laverne is more than likely going to pass away. Being able to let go and accept what fate has to offer is weirdly bittersweet because it's something that everyone has to go through. Fate is not something within our control because it encompasses aspects of our life for which we only have partial control over. The concept of you being able to embrace your own fate and really thinking that you're in control of your own life, when really the truth is you're not, it is one of the hardest aspects that everyone has to come to terms with. It's a hard pill to swallow because we simply do not like to think that we're not in control of our own lives. I think people need to learn to embrace the things in life that we don't have control over. Check your judgments and actions. Investigate what you're doing and how you're thinking. What direction are you hoping to move your life into? Carla accepts this notion and overcomes her sense of denial and selfishness by accepting the fact that the reality is completely out of her control. And yes, it was indeed time for her to say goodbye for good. Following from this, we can think about the importance of how to appropriately end a conversation and leave the presence of another person with nothing but love and gratitude. As grim as it sounds, think about the last time you spoke horrible to someone and you ended the conversation in a massive argument. Imagine if something happened to said person and your last memory with them is a negative one. Could you live with that? I think it's something that's a lot more easier said than done because it's not uncommon to have turbulent relationships with family members or friends but it's definitely something to think about going forward. In the final episode I'm going to be talking about, it is the last episode of season 8, which is the true final ending of Scrubs, being my finale. JD is leaving Sacred Heart Hospital to move closer to his son. As he leaves for the last time, he thinks back to how many people he's worked with and treated over the years. He walks down the hallway to exit and he sees the people who have helped him make him into the doctor who he has become all standing in a line to say their farewells. He walks through the door at the end and a projection starts playing in front of him. It displays what he fantasises the future holds for him. This includes marrying his girlfriend Elliot, having another child, spending Christmas with Turk and Dr Cox's families, and his final narration kicks in. It's never good to live in the past too long. As for the future, it wasn't so scary anymore. It could be whatever I wanted it to be. And who's to say this isn't what happens? Who can't tell me that my fantasies won't come true? Just this once. And then roll credits. That was the last ever, ever, ever episode of Scrubs. What have we learned from this episode then? It's pretty much a love letter to your future. 
He's completely right in saying that anything you wish for, if you put your mind to it, you can totally do. Releasing past negativity, focusing on today and being excited for the future is a craft of which many people need to jump in the habit of. Think about it. What have you always wanted to do? Like, be really realistic and really think about it. Now, ask yourself, what's stopping you? If you feel like something's totally in the realm of possibility, if you give it your all, absolutely nothing is stopping you apart from yourself. What are you scared of? You can either take the jump and succeed, or you can take the jump and land on a soft surface. Nothing that is within your reach is impossible. Taking the risk to do things is scary and it does come with a heightened sense of paranoia and anxiety. But I think if you're not somewhat scared, that means you're comfortable and you've settled. If you're scared to do something, that means you're about to make a massive change in your own life and there's an unbelievably great chance that it's going to be for the better. Scrubs is a special series because it can literally go from side splitting funny to insanely dramatic in a heartbeat. And unless you've watched the show for yourself, it's quite hard to believe. It's a weird premise to get on board with at first. As mentioned earlier, I've always loved Scrubs and I always will. Rewatching them again from the start over the past few weeks has been an absolute delight for me. Although I did say at the beginning when I watched it that my favourite character when I was younger was JD and he's probably one of my least favourite characters now. Elliot has easily took his place. I am really tempted to do, do you know, like a character breakdown or something or I could rank the characters, I'm not sure, we'll see. As grim as this episode's kind of come across, me reflecting on the saddest episodes and the episodes that have had the biggest emotional reaction with me, it's weird because I'm trying to persuade more people to watch the series. And I know this could be a little bit off-putting because some of the themes are quite dark, but you can learn so much from watching them. Like, it does put life into perspective a little bit more, especially with the fact it's in a hospital setting and it is very realistic in terms of, like, medical procedures and lingo that they use or whatever but I've only spoke about five really emotional episodes and these are probably the top five most emotional like every single one of these had me sobbing but I think in total there's like 160 episodes so there's gonna be a ton of episodes that are nothing but comedy so if you've never watched it before or again if you've not watched it for a very long time I would highly recommend I hope me talking about the comedic melancholy of the show hasn't put you off too much. But if you're quite an emotional person and you like to have a good think about serious themes and serious topics, this is the show for you. And even though it is a few years old, it's just still one of the best and it always will be. And I think something that's kicked off us wanting to watch Scrubs from the start was the fact that Zach Braff and Donald Faison started their own podcast, Fake Doctors Real Friends. I think I listened to that the same night I said to Steve and we were going to be putting on the first episode and just hearing, I don't know, just hearing the voices again just made me feel really nostalgic and I really wanted to watch it and I'm really happy that Steve actually agreed to watch the entire series and he definitely low-key loves it now even though I've really fucking pushed it on him, he really does like it. But yeah, no, that pretty much wraps up this episode. So yeah, as I've already said, If you've never watched Scrubs or if you haven't watched it for a while, just do it. And as mentioned earlier, if you want to laugh, it'll make you laugh. If you want to cry, it'll make you cry. If you want to be invested in high energy thought out storylines with a cast who bounce off each other with the best chemistry, this show is for you. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode on how Scrubs have mastered the art of comedic melancholy.